0: Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. Good morning, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at Mercy Hill. If you got a Bible, uh, you can turn to Matthew chapter 19. Uh, Matthew's in the New Testament, uh, the very first book of the New Testament, uh, and you can f- Feel free here uh, to use the table of contents or whatever you need to do navigation-wise on your phone to get there, Uh, and so we just want to make sure you can look at the text. A just quick disclaimer uh, for the message today uh, when it comes to the text is uh, normally, uh, I like to get right into it. It's going to take us a minute, uh, so don't freak out, all right? I know what you're going to be thinking. Introduction, this whole thing was pretty long. Uh, We're not to the text yet, and so how long is this sermon going to be, all right? Just be at ease. It's kind of part of the plan this morning, all right? Sound good? Okay, sounded good to seven people, so the rest of you guys just hold on. Uh, Jesus tells a famous story. We don't find it in Matthew 19. We find it in Luke chapter 15. And this story is about a family. In particular, the story centers on a father and his two sons. The younger son, when we meet him, is rebellious. The younger son wants to be free of the constraints of his father's house. Maybe you've been there before and you know the feeling. Some of you, college students, Leading up to college, you were like, I have to get out of this place. Need a little bit of freedom. And so the younger son in this story cashes out his inheritance early, heads to a distant land, and just lives it up. But in his pursuit of freedom from his father and from his family of his upbringing, he finds that his freedom is not going very well. And so he comes back home broken, repentant, and fully recognizing his great need for help. The older son in the story stays home the entire time. The older son works hard. He's obedient. He wants to to please his father. And by all measures, the older son is the good son. There's a very clear black sheep in this story, and it is not him. What's fascinating about this story is the way that it ends. In the ending of the story, the younger rebellious son returns, apology ready, hat in hand, and his father throws a massive party to celebrate. In fact, one of the most famous lines Jesus ever utters is from this story, where the father says this, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So the party for this returning rebellious, reckless, morally compromised younger son then rubs the older son the wrong way. He refuses to come into the celebration, His father goes out to see them. He complains to his father about his lack of reward. He says, I obeyed you. I was here. I did everything you asked. And you know what I got out of it? Nothing. I didn't even get a meal with my friends, much less a party like this one. But oh, you, you got this son that betrayed you, comes back home and you throw him a party. What do I get out of this deal? By the end of the story, Jesus has turned the whole story on its head. It's not the rebel who was separated from his father. He's returned home in repentance and has been welcomed back into the family. Instead, it is the righteous one, the good son, who we find at the end of the story is separated from his father. He's outside of the party. He's the one that's bitter and upset. He not only wants nothing to do with his younger, rebellious, reckless brother, but he wants nothing to do with his gracious, loving father. Why? Why? Here's what Tim Keller says. He says, the elder brother is not losing the father's love in spite of his goodness, but because of it. It is not his sins that create a barrier between him and his father. It's the pride that he has in his moral record. It's not his wrongdoing, but his righteousness that is keeping him from sharing in the feast with the father. Is that even possibly true? Is it possible that it is our goodness that can prevent us from knowing God? Is it possible that being morally upright can actually be the very thing that blocks us from a relationship with God? Is it even possible that our goodness, our doing the right thing, could be the very thing that is separating us from God? Is that even possible? It seems like, according to Jesus' parable, that it's not only possible, but likely. Let's think for a second about Jesus' interactions in the Gospels with other people. Who's drawn to Jesus? Irreligious, tax collectors and sinners, prostitutes, suffering, poor children. Who's repelled by Jesus? Religious leaders, morally upright Pharisees. Why? 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 Because the heart issue here is about need. And some of us recognize our need to be saved. And some of us just can't see it. Now, obviously, God wants us to do good. Doing good is good. That's why it's called doing good. But the issue is our hearts. And then we often do good to hide our need for God. One of my favorite authors is Flannery O'Connor, perhaps because she tells some really twisted and messed up stories, perhaps because there's religious uh, overtones all over her work, or perhaps because she grew up about an hour from where I grew up, and I feel a kindred spirit with somebody else from South Georgia or Middle Georgia, depending on your perspective. But in her novel, Wise Blood, she describes a main character, Hazel Motes, like this. This is what she said there was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. So this main character who grows up the grandson of a preacher who decides he doesn't want anything to do with Jesus figures out the trick. The way to not have to admit that you need Jesus is to not do anything that would require for you to need Jesus. I don't have to injure my pride and show that I am incapable of saving myself if I'm just good enough. If I could keep up the appearances that I am a good person, that I'm well and good on my own, then I don't need Christ to save me. Not like these other people who can't get their lives together. They probably need it differently. Later in the novel, Hazel uh, becomes a street preacher just like his grandfather, but he comes, becomes a street preacher for a new kind of church. He calls it the church without Christ. What's the point here? O'Connor's trying to make this point that we often want the appearance of religion and goodness, but we don't want Jesus. And the reason we don't want Jesus is because we don't want to admit that we need him that there is something lacking in us. Here's the way Martin Luther described it. He says that we're all involved in a self-salvation project, that some of us believe that we can save ourselves by freeing ourselves from the constraints of religion and society's expectation of heavy-handed parents like the younger son. We think I'll find the good life when I can do my own thing, when I can maximize my own freedom. But some of us, probably some of us here today, believe we can save ourselves by being good people. And that was Luther's experience. Luther became incredibly religious, pursued a religious education, joined a very strict, observant monastery, the Order of the Hermits of St augustine and he tried to earn or good enough his way to salvation and it did not work for him and we could try the same thing obeying our way to god's favor obeying our way to heaven obeying our way to people's respects or obeying our way to increasing our own moral pride and we do it all the time not because we want to know god We do it because we don't think we need God to save us. We do it because we think we're good. And we have no lack. We do it for the same reason the older brother in Jesus' story did it. Not because he loves his father, but because he wanted something from his father. Same for us. We do it not because we think we need God or we want to know God. We want to make sure God knows he needs us. And he owes us. The more we use anything, including our obedience, to make us think we don't need God, the further and further away from God we get. The more we use our good deeds to try to put God in our debt, the further and further from God we actually get. Which leads us to Matthew 19. the story of the rich young ruler, it's an encounter that Jesus has. It's also famous, just like the story from Luke 15. If we pick up in verse 16, here's what he says: Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Verse 17, he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you enter life and keep, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Verse 18, he said to him, Which ones? Which commandments? So Jesus responds, and Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what still do I lack? Verse 21, and Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So this guy comes to Jesus and asks a question. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? We know he's very rich from the story. Here's the idea. Hey, I have everything this life has to offer. I'm a good person. I'm wealthy. My 401k is in great shape. But I have this nagging feeling that I'm missing out on something. And I want to make sure that's totally taken care of. For eternal life. So, what good deed must I do? What's the question? How can I earn salvation? Maybe we could put it this way the myth, often of our age, the myth, often that we believe of, that happens also in Jesus' time, is just this I can achieve enough. That's simple. I can achieve enough. I can achieve enough. I can do enough good so that God will finally be happy with me. But Jesus instead gives him this answer. He says to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you enter life, keep the commandments. In other accounts of this, Jesus says specifically only God is good. And at times this passage has been used to say, oh, Jesus doesn't claim to be God. He confuses these categories. But I think actually Jesus Well, one never explicitly says, that's not me. He just says, only God is good. But I think what he's doing here is he's giving this guy a way to think about what is good. He's trying to get him to think about his own position and his own life. He's saying this, since you've been thinking about what's good and what's not good, or who is good and who is not good, let me give you a grid, a way to determine. Here's the grid, God's character. God's good. And God's the only one who is perfectly good. So what's the question behind that he's given this guy? So how do you think you stack up against God's goodness? You come into this conversation, think you're going to do one more good deed, and everything's going to be good? Let's compare your character to God's character. And then he gives them another thing to think about what God requires. It says, keep the commandments. It's like, hey, man, I want you to catch this. God's the one who decides what's good. He's the one that sets the rules. So how do you stack up with what God requires of people? I think the guy gets it at least in part because he responds, which ones? Hey, bro, if you're asking me to keep what God requires, then I got a question for you. Which one of these laws that God requires are the ones that are really important for me to keep? Let's make this list as short as possible, please. And Jesus gives them several of the Ten Commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, bear false witness, honor your mother and father. Very basic from the Ten Commandments. And I love what this guy says. Fully confident. All these I have kept, what do I lack? Listen, man, I'd say I'm a pretty good person. Have you heard this one before? I haven't killed anybody. I haven't slept with anybody who isn't my wife. Or I haven't done that in a long time anyway. I haven't stolen from anyone. I haven't lied to anyone. I haven't taken advantage of anybody in a business deal. I got a good relationship with my parents. So I must be in good shape. But let's go back to this grid of goodness that Jesus gives to this guy. Meeting the minimum requirements? Is that what Jesus is after here? Or is he after something more? Remember, he says only God is good. This is God's character. Imagine the gumption of this rich young ruler after Jesus has said only God is good, and that dude says, no, I got it. I think in my estimation, I am a good person. God would be happy with me. And then after Jesus points out the requirements, it never crosses his mind that God might require more of him than just not murdering people and respecting his parents. He never gives a moment's thought to any other commandments. For instance, he never thinks of the first 10 commandments of the 10 commandments, which is what? You shall have no other gods before me. It never crosses his mind that God requires ultimate and complete allegiance from him. He never thinks of the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 5, which every Jewish family and kid would know. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. That God would require for him complete, not just allegiance, but God would require from him complete love and devotion. In other words, he never thinks about the fragility of his own goodness. That it wouldn't be enough, that it wouldn't stack up, that it wouldn't measure up. And so Jesus tells him to do one more thing. Verse 21 says, if you'd be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus is making it very clear here that the only way anybody could ever be saved is by selling all of their stuff. No, we know that's not true because he didn't require this of every disciple that followed him, right? He's obviously doing something else. What is he doing? He's pressing into this guy's heart. He's making him ask the question, do you have another God before me? Do you have another higher allegiance? Are you breaking the first commandment right now? Is your allegiance to your own goodness or your own wealth before it's to God? He's making him ask this question, do you love something more than me? Do you have another love? Is your own goodness and your moral purity or your wealth coming before me? Do you have another love? And it turns out he did. And so while he could perfectly obey half of the Ten Commandments, He walks away empty handed because he missed out on the first one. It turns out he had another God. And we could say it was wealth. I think it's Himself. He is His own God. His wealth and His goodness here are connected. In Jesus' day, wealth was an indication of God's blessing. Who did God bless? Well, God blesses good people. So how do we know who good people are? Good people are the ones that God blesses. How do we know God blessed somebody? They have a lot of money or wealth. We see this clearly in verse 25. We're going to get there in a second. But the disciples, based on this whole interaction, are astonished about who can or who can't be saved. Why? Because they're like, how could a guy who God's obviously blessed not be a guy who's saved? If he's wealthy, he's obviously received God's blessing. And it's got to be based on something in his own character. So for the rich young ruler, this wealth is actually an outward sign to his community that he's a good person. A person who has, by moral fortitude, worked his way into God's good graces. This wealth is a sign to himself that he has God's blessing, that he is a good person, that God is on his team. And this is the very thing that Jesus wants to deconstruct. Tim Keller says it this way, you can avoid Jesus as Savior by keeping all the moral laws. If you do that, then you have rights. God owes you answered prayers and a good life and a ticket to heaven when you die. You don't need a Savior who pardons you by free grace. You are your own Savior. And this is where the rubber meets the road for us. Because for a lot of us in our own relationship with God, we think I'm good, I have rights. God, this is what I did for you, now I demand my reward. We think God owes us. Some of us are busy doing good to try to get God in our debt. If I help enough old ladies across the street, God will owe me what I really want. Some of us are looking, just like Keller says, like a ticket for heaven. So we can look back and go, I paid for that. I earned my way into eternal life. And it turns out, just like the rich young ruler, you and I also have competing allegiances and competing loves. And it's often our own goodness, not our vices, that show our real allegiances and our real loves. Our reputations, we obey the rules so that others will think highly of us, so that we give off the appearance of having it all together. Who's God there? My own reputation. Our pride. We obey the rules so that we can feel good about ourselves. We can take pride in how moral we are and we don't have to admit to God or anybody else that we've fallen short. Our own need to maintain control, we're good. So we put God in our debt. We control him, he doesn't control us. We do good so he owes us something in return. This is why so many of us inner seasons of doubt about God when it comes time for suffering. Because we think God owes us more than that. We think we earned it. God, I've been going to church every day since I was seven years old. And you let this happen to my family? God, I've been giving money to that church for the past 15 years, you let this happen to me? I don't, God, I don't know why you're punishing me. It's not like I killed anybody. And Jesus is in this interaction of saying, friends, it's not the way it works. But I think the real key to understanding this text is a conversation Jesus has with his disciples next. Verse 23. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 24, and again I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, then who can be saved? If that guy doesn't get in, what hope do I have? Verse 26, but Jesus looked at him and said, with man this is impossible, but with all things God But with God, all things are possible. What does he mean that it's difficult for the wealthy? What does he mean by this whole camel through a needle? I know there's tons of people who will explain this like, well, um, there was a pathway through the mountains and a sharp turn that was called the the eye of the needle and you couldn't get a camel through there. Um, One, uh, I haven't ever found anything to say that's actually true. Uh, But two, it misses the whole point. Jesus means what he says. He's using hyperbole, but he means what he says. If you don't see your need for a savior, you can't be saved. If you think you can buy it with money or with your own goodness, you can't be saved. And it is precisely those of us who refuse to recognize our own need who will be excluded. And our pride will prevent us from coming to Christ. Don't miss it. This is like Jesus saying, a snowball's chance in hell, or good luck driving your Ford expedition through a keyhole. The disciples are amazed they're shocked. Why? This guy's got to be good. He's got to be good enough for God. He's got all these blessings in his life. This guy has got to be the perfect candidate. He's respected. He's wealthy. He's successful. He's a good person. He's got it all. And if God isn't happy with him, what chance do I have? They say, then who could be saved? And that is exactly the point that Jesus is driving to and that is the exact response that he wanted from his disciples and, friends, it is the exact response he wants from you today. Then who could be saved? And Jesus says, it is impossible for you. You can't get there on your own. Impossible. With God, all things are possible. The impossible is possible. You can't be good enough. You can't be successful enough. You can't be relevant enough. You can't whatever. It's all fragile. You need God to make a way. The bad news of the story is you can't save yourself you could stack your good deeds up to the heavens and you can't save yourself. Here's the good news. You don't have to. Let me say that again. For those of you who came in today trying your best to earn your way into God's favor, you can stop right now. You don't have to do that. You don't have to stack up your good deeds. You don't have to compare yourselves to other people. You don't have to. The bad news is as long as we think we can save ourselves, as long as we think we can put God into our debt, as long as we think we can earn our salvation, we are getting further and further and further away from God. The good news is that doesn't have to be the way. Neil Richardson says this, Jesus taught That God is not only more demanding than people cared to think, but is also more generous than they dared to hope. Good news for you this morning is God is way more generous than you could ever imagine. We see that encapsulated in one beautiful verse. You've heard it before. You've seen it at every baseball game you've ever been to. John 3, 16. What does he say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. How do we know God? How do we have eternal life? It starts, these are Jesus' words, with what God does. That God, out of his generosity and grace, gives. And what did God give? Well, in the story of the Gospels, what God gives is Jesus. That Jesus shows up in person. That Jesus came to rescue or to save that Jesus lived a perfect life, the life that you and I were supposed to live, the good life Jesus lived it. But the good news of the gospel is his perfect life, while it is an example of us of what God requires, is not an example by which we're saved. You and I can't be saved or rescued just by following Jesus' teachings or following Jesus' example. Sometimes I talk to some of my friends who are more progressive in their theology And they have this idea that we are saved by following the example of Jesus. And I'm like, bro, that is the worst news I've ever heard in my entire life. You didn't encourage me. You just sent me into depression. I'll be saved if I'm just like Jesus. Oh, no, no, no. But that's not the end of the story. God gave. God gave even more. God not only gave Jesus to come and teach us, to show us the good life that we were intended to live, but God gave his son, Jesus, to death on the cross. And on the cross, Jesus pays in full the penalty for your sins and my sins. Our shortcomings, our maximizing our freedom, all of our younger brother, younger son stuff, and to pay the penalty for where we thought we were good enough, just like the older brother. Both to take our fallen nature on himself and to think, oh, this is where I am proud of who I am. Jesus took it all on the cross, paid that debt in full, giving his life for you. God gave. And then Jesus rose from the dead, defeating sin and death for you in your place with the promise that he will raise those who believe in him to a new life for you. Bad news is you can't save yourself. The good news is you don't have to because Jesus saves. Jesus rescues us from sin and death. Jesus saves us from our own pride. Jesus saves. We are not saved by what we give to God, but what God gave for us. We're not saved by what we give up for God, but what God gave for us. We are not saved by what good we've done for God, but the good that God did for us in Jesus. If we go back to that grid of goodness, then there's two questions for us today, every single one of us. If only God is perfectly good, how do I stack up? How do you stack up? And if God requires not just obedience, but allegiance and love, how do I stack up? I think all of us would have to be confronted with the fragility of our own goodness. Say, I don't stack up very well. And then the best news. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That this message is for whoever. No matter how you stack up, no matter how guilty or full of shame you feel, no matter how you try to cover over that by your goodness, no matter who you are or where you come from, here's the good news, whoever. Whoever will come and say, I need saving. I can't do it on my own. And so I am going to believe in Jesus or trust in Jesus or ask Jesus to save me. And that is the good news. And it is good news for every single one of us here. For those of us who are believers, this is good news because it is easy to fall back into the trap of believing that we have to save ourselves. If you have trusted Christ this morning, you can breathe easy. You have peace with God. You've been connected in a relationship with God. He knows your name, and your eternity is secure, not because of your goodness, but because of his. And so you can leave here today full of adoration and awe at what God did for you in your place. You can leave here today not saddled with guilt or shame or the load of trying to prove yourself over and over again. You can leave here today having experienced the reality of God's grace, his generosity towards you. He gave you what you need to be saved. Jesus. And for those of us who came in today not believing in Christ, not followers of Jesus, who are still trying to prove ourselves to God, still on the rat race of trying to stack up our good deeds so God will finally be happy with us, the best news I can give you today is you don't have to do that anymore. You can trust Christ. You could pray right now in this moment and you could say right now in this moment, God, I know my good deeds will never be enough and I know I need your son Jesus to save me. Jesus, will you save me? The answer is always yes because whoever believes is saved Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into to a local church near you. Have a great week.